Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend on Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Saditet, page 99. I want to try to make some sense of the Mishnah that we read yesterday on page nine, <coughs> excuse me, on page 98, which was not only was it a confusing Gemara to explain, <coughs> excuse me, the Gemara thinks it was a, a, a Mishnah that itself doesn't make sense. And that I think is you know, by virtue of the fact that the Gemara itself thinks that the Mishnah doesn't make sense, let's try again, so to speak. I'm not going well, back to the Mishnah to read. Let's give the, the Gemara credit. I mean, the Mishnah doesn't make sense. Fair enough, <laughs> right? But the Gemara tries, takes another stab at trying to, to flesh it out or to understand what's going on. So I'm beginning, I'm going to read a little bit inside and talk a little bit more outside. Um, I'm at the beginning of the, I'm sorry, at the end of the Last daf, right? 98b at the very bottom, right? So the Gemara says, Tashma, haitaktu batamana, So it says, let's try to understand this case. What was the case? The contract is worth 100 dinar. She sold property that was worth 100 dinar plus one dinar, meaning 101 dinar. And what she did was, according to this, this piece of the Gemara, she sold that property that's worth 101 dinar for 100. So the lack of, so the sale is a dinar short in terms of what the value of the property itself is. She, of course, takes her full tuba money and she's done. But now that extra dinar is the, the complaint, right? That she's basically shortchanging the yatomim comes from that dinar that she, because she, she sold short on the, I don't mean like from the stock market. I mean, she didn't get all the money that she should have gotten according to the value of the property. So now the Gemara wants, you know, on, again, still on the bottom of the previous stuff, the Gemara wants to understand this case and does not like that explanation, right? To say that, in fact, you know, she sold it for, a hundred. she just sold a little bit, she sold 101 dinar property for 100 dinar. The Gemara says, no, there should be, if you're going to say that the whole thing is null and void, which was what the Mishnah's stance was, then there has to be something fundamentally wrong if there's something going going wrong in the sale itself, not just this one extra dinar that should be returned to the Yatoman. So Amar of Huna Rav Nata, this is the last line of the previous stuff, Lo Ozil. So he, he says, no, the correct understanding of this Mishnah, it's not that she didn't sell it for the right amount, but the problem is that she reduced the price and sold it for less than it's worth. And that is considered an error in the sale itself. Meaning, it's not about the fact that she now owes the atomum that that dinar. It's that the the idea of messing with the value of the property is somehow considered a problem, like in the very essence of the transaction. Fine, maybe a little bit more fine. Maybe not great, but a little bit more fine in terms of understanding why the why the mission itself, you know, is is trying to make sense of how, what is going on here, that it's null and void, and the Gemara doesn't like the idea that it's null and void, but if you say that by by adjusting the actual value, by claiming a different kind of value, a lesser value for the item, you're saying that it, she's messing with the property itself, well, maybe that can be considered a good reason to nullify the actual sale, right? And now I want to say that I have a comment here cited from the Rivan. And this helped me a lot. So that really what's happening is that when she goes to sell that property to get the money for her ketubah, right? Because she's, 
the guy has died. Her husband. Let me be clear. Let me be respectful. The husband has died. She's entitled to the money of the ketubah. The ketubah is worth 100 dinar in this example. Now, that means that she's supposed to collect that money from the yatomim, from the orphans, the heirs of the dead husband. But they don't have any cash on hand. So she's now going to go sell the property to be able to get the money that is going to count to be her ketubah. What the Rivan's position says that it's it's as if she is functioning as an agent for the atonement, for the orphans, right? So the fact is, now we say, well, she misrepresented the value of the property and she under undervalued it. That's really bad representation, right? She's no longer being a good agent for the atonement. And if she can't do it well, then fundamentally that's causing them to suffer a loss, then who's going to have her as the representative, right? The Yatoman would say, get out of here. You're fired from the job. You're not doing a good job. You're not doing a good job. It's null and void. Meaning the the very fact that she's undervaluing the property um, gets in the way of her role there as an agent on the behalf of the Yatoman, again, with the goal of selling the property for her to get the money. So I found that to be very helpful in understanding why the Mishnah would you know, say that she's that the whole transaction is gone. So I think one of the things I'm finding interesting here is that it's the piece I can't completely figure out is, is that my assumption is, is that the widow we discuss and the orphans are not related or I think that's right. Yeah. But so I think this also tells us like, you know, look, people died much younger than they do today. And so probably was not uncommon for people to have second or third marriages even. Right. Um, but even with a woman and her children, there still is sort of a competitiveness to the estate. And, you know, and I think this Mishnah really highlights that. So, you know, because in other words, the, the woman, the wife gets what she gets and the children get what they get. And those things are not actually mixed together. You know, today, when we think about American law, it, everything just goes to the spouse. That is not the case in, you know, in halacha. Like there's what the wife is entitled to, the widow is entitled to, and then there's what the inheritors are entitled to. It's a very different system of inheritance. But I think throughout all of these cases where we've got the widow as compared to the yatomim, I think that the default is that they are not her children. They, that they, because... Right. Otherwise, I, I don't think uh, maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't think the Gemara calls um, a woman's children yatomim, even when her husband, their father, has died. Well, the right? Term, Where yatomim, well, the term yatomim is meant is meant to mean just the inheritors. Like I, I don't know why they don't always call them yorshim, but it's it's just meant to mean it's it's the people to inherit. The only reason why I, I wonder if the word yatom is used is it's a way of saying that they're both two protected classes. In other words, the mitzvah, I think that's that's, right, the mitzvah that's most commonly mentioned in the Torah is the one to take care of the almana and the yatom, to take care of the widow and the orphan. So th- by using that language specifically in the Mishnah, you're highlighting that these are two protected classes. These are two classes that the court has to make sure is taken care of. And what do you do right. when they're competing against each other in a way right? To be taken care of. Exactly. 
All right, so I'm going to go on to read a piece in the Gemara uh, on Amud Bet, which deals with this issue about a shaliach, right? You tell somebody to sell property for you or sell something for you, they don't listen to the instructions, right? So it's obvious that if a person says to shaliach, sell my property to one person, but not to two, and let's say the shaliach went ahead and sold it to two people, since he said to, him, to one, but not to two, then it's clear the shaliach didn't listen to him. Therefore, he's considered a shaliach. And it's not clear that sale may not actually be valid. But if he says to shaliach, sell it to one person, what's the halacha? In other words, does he have to specify, right, that not to sell it to two people? What if he just says, echad, and then the shaliach went ahead and sold it to two? Rafuna Amar, so Rafuna says, right, that when somebody says, right, so he means one person and not to sell to two people. And then it goes on to say, they said the following, no, if you say even one, you know, sell it to one person, it could mean, okay, you could sell it to two people. In other words, ideas like just you're saying to go sell it. And if you say echad, it could mean even a hundred, meaning it's not a specific term if you say echad. So according to Rav Huna, it means echad to the exclusion of any other number. But according to Rav Chis and Rav Abar Rav Huna, it's not to that exclusion. And then they show a story that illustrates this point of, uh, well, really that this halacha was quoted of Rav Chis and Rav Abar Rav Huna. Ikale Rav Nachman Litsura. So Rav Nachman came to Tsura. Ula Gabe Rav Chis and Rav Abar Rav Huna. And Rav Chista and Rav Rav Huna entered before him. Amar and they said to him, Ki hai gavna. In a case like this, what's the halacha? Amar lehu, lechad vafil l'shain, lechad vafil l'mea. So he said to them the same thing that they were quoted as saying before. This is Rav Nachman answers them, right? That one could mean two, one could even mean a hundred. Amar So Rav Chista and Rav Huna said to him, Afal gavta ta'ashaliyach, Right? Is the agent, right, is this shaliach, right, who's supposed to do this person's bidding, is he still considered a, a shaliach, even if he made a mistake, right? And so, Amar did ta'ah shaliach lo kamane. So, Rav Nachman said, says back to them, right, I don't say it in a case where the shaliach made a mistake. In other words, the, this ta'ah is a case of where the shaliach sells it for less than what it was valued at. That's not what he's talking about, Rav Nachman's saying, right? What he's saying is, right? So they say back to Rav Nachman, but didn't the master, didn't Rav Nachman say that there's no prohibition against fraud in the sale of land? In other words, that there's really no fraud, right? That there isn't a set value for land. You sort of set the price for the land itself. So Rav Nachman goes back and he says, Right, he says this applies when the when the Baal Habayit makes a mistake, right? If the Baal Habayit sells the land for less than the market value, he can't claim fraud. But if the Shaliach does it, right? Right, the homeowner can say, I asked you to act for my benefit and not for my detriment. And so in that case, yeah, we don't we don't have to accept that sale. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to say, right? Where do you say that there's actually a difference between the Shaliach and the Baal Bayit? And then they go on to quote a Gemara here from Truma that has to do with the separation of Truma 
whether it's done by a Balabite or whether it's done uh, by a Shaliach. But the point here of this Gemara is uh, that I'm not going to, uh, you know, it's just a little bit more where, where it quotes this Mishnah. But the important thing here is to see that, you know, the Gemara is getting to sort of a very typical Gemara discussion, which is how specific does the language need to be, right? And so they quote this, this you know, opinion of, of Rachista and uh, of, uh, of Rachista and Rabbi Bar Rapuna, where maybe it doesn't have to be so, you know, specific. But then they bring up this story with them and, and Rav Nachman, where Rav Nachman wants to basically say, no, not having specific language is very different than the Shaliach going ahead and just like actually just not selling it for the right amount. Like that we're not going to count because obviously that's such a glaring error that could never be what the owner actually intended. I think this is a really, I think that both aspects of the, the daf today that I spoke about, and you're speaking, speaking about this idea that there's a Shaliach, right? That there's an agent or representative of the people who really make the sale. Um, you know, it's taking a, a it's taking its place in the center of the discussion in a way that I did not anticipate, certainly not beforehand. And I feel like, I don't know, the concept of shaliach is huge in certain areas of halacha, specifically things like, you know, giving a get or or even purchasing a property, as we see here, right? But the I I, I don't know. I feel like I I have learned so many different angles of shaliach, and I don't remember the masses of them being found in Ketubot. A little bit, sure, because it's really everywhere. We've talked about it before as well. And I think that this idea that you're having an agent do your job for you, so to speak, um, you know, what that entails and what that means in terms of the potential things to go awry in the transaction, um, I think it's going to bear a lot of attention as we go forward. And I also just want to point out, like, this ties back again to our original thing, because in a way, when we speak about the Amana and the Atom, and they both have stake in proper, you know, in a, in a particular state, right? The idea when she does that sale, when the Almana sells property, in a way she's acting as a Shaliach for the Atom. And therefore we need to make sure that she, you know, sold the property for what it was actually worth and not just to sell it, just to sort of get her cut and not really worry, you know, about the rest of the estate. Right. Well said. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 